Well, we're not even going to pretend that this sermon can stand alone this morning. Um, man, it is the culmination of not only not only months, but years of our progress together through the Word of God. I, I found myself this week looking up sermons for references from 2013. It's been a while. So, if you're a guest with us today, on its own, this may be a jagged little mouthful. But, in the grand grace, mercy, perfection, and infinite wisdom of God, it is a beautiful thing. Continuing this morning in Amos chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, the fixed eye of the Lord, part 2. But if we can, for a moment, maybe digress from the text, I would like to start by saying this, that God is not the author of sin. Amen? Amen. God is not the author of sin. God is infinite in His perfection. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, the Lord says, The rock, His work is perfect for all His ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. And therefore, we can say that there is no darkness in Him at all. As a matter of fact, the apostle that Christ loved, the apostle John in his first epistle in chapter 1 and verse 5 says, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And you said, well, pastor, you just said that we can say that in him there is no darkness. And then you quoted John, which said the exact same thing. Couldn't you be perhaps a little bit more original with the turn of the phrase? And the answer is no. It was just right the way he said it the first time. You see, God loves righteousness. And he hates wickedness. In Psalm 45, over a thousand years before John wrote, the psalmist says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. And you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. God is not the author of sin. Sin is of the created and not of the Creator, which is why the half-brother of Jesus on his mother's side, James, would write in chapter 1 and verses 13 through 14 of his epistle and say, Let no one say when he is tempted that I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. You have never one time in your existence been tempted to evil by God. He tempts no one. Let me tell you, as much as you would like to think you're being tempted by the devil, 
typically you're being tempted by yourself. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. You see, sin can't be of God for according to Romans chapter 5 verse 23, the wages of sin is death and yet the nature of Christ is life and light. The opposite of death and sin. For all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made and in him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Here you see the relationship between the creator and the creation. The one that is life and shines forth that life in light, in dominance and dominion over the rebellious creature who would attempt to overcome it and yet fails. God is not the author of sin. And I want to make that point abundantly clear right off the bat before we even start so that it cannot be used as some kind of cudgel against the truth of Scripture that we are about to explore. God is not the author of sin. While that may be a very straightforward concept, you can follow this sermon under God is not a simpleton. For the fact that God is not the author of sin is very particularly applicable when what we see in Amos chapter 9 verses 2 through 4 is the exact mirror image of the 139th Psalm. In the 139th Psalm where we were last week, you get the Lord looking down upon his man, upon his king, upon his people and saying, wherever you go, no matter where it be, no matter how high or how deep, wherever you go, I will be there to lead you. My right hand will hold you. You can't run from me. Whereas in Amos chapter 9 verses 2 through 4, the Lord says, wherever you go, no matter how high or how deep, I will be there to kill you. You can't run from me. In Amos 9 verse 2, if they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my side at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. If they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And if that wasn't enough... Lord, and I pray that would be enough. If that wasn't enough, then this. 
I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. I will fix my eyes upon them. For evil and not for good. Friends, I want you to know today that what Amos and indeed Scripture at large demands is that not that God is the author of evil. And not that good and evil exist as some sort of kind of Eastern philosophy, eternal yin and yang, these balanced furies of the Greek philosophers' minds. As a matter of fact, what Scripture teaches is that sin and evil is actually dependent first upon the existence of that which is righteous and good. And that evil cannot exist in a vacuum. Instead, it is dependent. And I, and I want you to hear that word dependent because what you're going to see, I think, today in Scripture is, is dominance and dependency on parade. And what you'll find is as much as evil and rebellion hates it and wants to be dominant, what they are is dependent. And what God is, is independent and dominant. Sin is dependent upon the existence of righteousness. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, speaking of the nature of a fallen creation, the Apostle Paul says, For all have sinned. All have sinned. You guys know this like the back of your hand. All have sinned. And what? We've fallen short of the glory of God, the standard that exists to define sin by definition is a standard that exists both before and apart from evil. And that standard is nothing less than the glory of God. And so here is the glory of God, this thing that is eternally existent. And being eternally existent, anything that falls short of that is the very definition of what it means to be evil and sinful. If you're going to become sinful by falling short of a standard, by definition, the standard must pre-exist your falling short. If it doesn't, there is nothing to fall short of. That standard is preexistent. That's why in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, the Apostle Paul writes, For by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. Freeman working kids today? Ain't that a shame? I could get an amen out of him. He's before all things. And in him, all things hold together. 
Here is the eternal standard by which righteousness exists of its own accord. And of which the existence of evil and sin is dependent. If you're going to fall short, before you can tumble to the ground, the standard of which you fall short too must first exist. God is not the author of sin. God is the standard by which sin is defined. That being the case, and friends, that is the case. You know, and what's the old saying? If you want to fight about it, give me five minutes to draw a crowd. <laughs> right? That is the case. Man, that's Orthodoxy 101. That's the Apostles. That's Polycarp. That's the pre-Nicene Fathers. As old as it gets. If that's the case, and it is, then what in the world do we do with the statement, I have fixed my eye upon you for evil and not for good? Well... If I may, there's at least two things that we don't get to do with that statement. So if we're going to talk about what do we do with that statement, what do we do with this statement, if we know that God is not the author of sin, that in him there is no shadow due to change, and man, he is light and there is no darkness at all, and he hates iniquity and he loves righteousness, and, 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 and evil is of the fallen creature falling short to an eternal standard that is nothing less than his own character, then what do we do with that? Okay, before we get to what we do, let's talk about what we don't do. Number one, the first thing we don't do is play fast and loose with the text. And that can look like one of two ways. And the first thing that we don't do is this. We don't do violence to the grammar. And what I mean by that, when I say what we don't do with this, is we don't do violence to the grammar. What I mean by that is we don't go, well, you know, when it says evil... It doesn't really mean evil. It means hardship. It means trial. It means travail. It means times are tough. And, and I'm doing this for you for times to be tough. And this is probably some kind of chastisement. That is not the word of God that Amos saw. That's not the word of God that Amos saw. We don't do violence to the grammar. We don't say evil doesn't mean evil. Kids, guess what evil means? Evil. The Greek is, or I'm sorry, the Hebrew. We're way, we're way earlier for Greek. The Hebrew is raha. I have nearly enough phlegm. Mark could have probably done it better this morning, man. That guy hated he wasn't here. He's struggling, man. Raha means wickedness wrongdoing that which is morally not good and that should be obvious to us in the text because when the Lord speaks to Amos and you notice Amos doesn't have anything to say when the Lord speaks to Amos he sets this concept of evil in direct opposition to the concept of that which is good 
Not the Rahab, but the Tobah. So I've done this for the Rahab, that which is evil, as opposed to that which is good, the moral opposite of evil, that which is, according to the Dictionary of Biblical Languages, intrinsically good. So, let's just be clear. When he says, I've done this, I've fixed my eye upon you, and it's for evil and not for good, that is not a bold translation. That is an accurate translation. If you wanted to look at this word, raha, in the, the Hebrew, I mean, there's a ton of examples. Let's look at just a couple. Joseph speaking to his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. He used the exact same two words. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so if you remember what happened to Joseph, he was severely beaten. He was thrown into a well. And then he was sold into slavery by his brothers. Now that may not be as evil as beating your brains out with a rock, which was what they were going to do first. And then because of Reuben changed their minds... But if those things were precipitated upon you, you would consider them to be pretty evil, I figure. I've never been chunked down a well. I've never been sold into slavery. But I'm figuring it's a pretty evil deal. Speaking of all of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 18, the Lord himself says, I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. So the kind of evil that is in view here is the kind of evil where you beat your brother, throw him in a well, and sell him into slavery. It's the kind of evil where you turn your face from the one true God and follow after other gods, which scripture tells us specifically is demonic, so that, according to Psalm chapter 55, verse 15, you become the very enemies of God. Let death steal over them, let them go down to Sheol alive, for evil is their dwelling place and in their heart. So the type of evil if we can put a pin in it here that is being spoken of when he says, I do this for your evil and not for your good, is um, evil. The kind that makes you sell your brother to slavery. The kind that makes you turn after false gods. The kind that makes you the enemy of God. So the first thing we're not going to do is, is do violence to the grammar and claim that this says something that it doesn't say because it says exactly what it says. Here's the second thing we're not going to do. We're not going to do violence to the context because the simplest hermeneutic in the world and the one that kind of we live and die by here at Mount Zion is that, that vocabulary and grammar combine in context to convey meaning. And so we're not going to do we're not going to do we're not going to do violence to the to the to the grammar and we're not going to do violence and really we covered vocabulary and grammar in that last one because it's the vocabulary that's the word but it's the grammar that sets it in juxtaposition against what is good. So now we're going to we'll simplify it for our sake today. <laughs> Right. Um, we're not going to do violence to the context. In other words, what we're not going to say is, well, when you look at Amos chapter 9, then what you see God doing here is 
simply his response to the sin that Jeroboam I led the people of Israel into. Now, we've brought this up every single week as we've been moving through the book of Amos, and we, by this point in time, I think we all know what happened. Jeroboam I, you know, the kingdom split, and they, they separated from Solomon's son Rehoboam, and Jeroboam was fearful in his heart that the, the heart of the people would turn back to the house of David because they would be going to Jerusalem to, to worship. And when they turned back to the house of David for worship, because it is a theocracy after all, so you know, kind of the merit of the kingship is based on the will of God. And so when they turned back to worshiping at the temple, then their heart would be turned away from his kingdom and back to the house of David, and he would lose his kingdom, and they would kill him. And so what did he do? He took counsel from his advisors, and he said, okay, kind of let's, let's not replace God. Let's just kind of remake him the way we need him to be. And so they, he remakes God, and he sets up these golden calves, and he doesn't say, this is a different God that you now worship. He says, this, O Israel, is thy Elohim that led you out of Egypt. These are those that would later be called by the prophets those that bring their God in their own hands. Ones that remake him the way they want him to be instead of the way he says that he is. Now man, that is a crucial factor in what is happening in Amos. But the fact that it's a crucial factor is not license for us to suppose upon the rest of the text. But the fact of the matter is what is going on in Amos where the Lord looks upon Israel and says, I have fixed my eye on you for evil and not for good is not simply a response to Jeroboam's sin. It's something much bigger than that. Flip back with me, if you will, to 1 Kings chapter 1. In 1 Kings chapter 1 and verse... Or not chapter 1, I'm sorry. 1 Kings chapter 12. In 1 Kings chapter 12, before all of this takes place, the kingdoms have, have just divided. You've got... Solomon's son, Rehoboam, sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. You've got the northern ten tribes that are consolidating and trying to figure out what the kingdom is going to look like based around the kingship of Jeroboam I when all of this is just getting started and there has not yet been this blasphemous statement made that this, O Israel, is thy Elohim that led you out of Egypt. Before all of that happens... In chapter 12, verse 21 through 24, Rehoboam came to Jerusalem and he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors, and that is a substantial army by today's standards. He summoned them to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all of the house of Judah, and to Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. 
Why? Because it's rude to punch your brother? Well, it is rude to punch your brother. Don't punch your brother. But that's not why God gives the answer. Every man returned to his home, for this thing is from me. And so they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again according to the word of the Lord. Now look. You got to become like a little child. Just because we're simple doesn't mean he is. Before the fear struck in his heart. That very thing that James talked about, that desire, in this case for power, that is the root of temptation and sin. Before fear struck in his heart, before he took counsel with other evil men, before he raised up two golden calves and taught the people of Israel how they could bring God in their pocket, before any of that, when it all could have been stopped by 180,000 warriors that could swing a spear like when you read what these guys did, you reverse this a little bit in your context, look at the mighty men of Israel. There was one of them, just one of them, that was fleeing one day from 300 Philistines and got tired of fleeing, so he just decided, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to stop and kill all of them. And he did. He took 180,000 chosen warriors from Judah, and succession will end until God says, don't do it. Because what's about to come is coming from me. So let it be. It's not even, it doesn't even stop there. It doesn't even stop there. Before we even get to this point the Lord's hand was already in producing this outcome. Look just up the page in 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 12 through 15. So let's back it up a little bit here. Now, hey, look, this is a pretty rapid narrative. So we're covering, I mean, the author of, you know, 1 Kings here is covering a lot of ground quick. Pretty rapid historical narrative. But if you back just up to chapter 12, verse 12 through 15, before... Rehoboam had summoned the troops and was going to go after them and stop the split of the kingdom before he was going to halt the very thing that was going to be so blasphemous that was going to end up in God going, hey, look, I've set my eye on you for evil and not for good. Well, before all of that, in verse 12 it says this, so Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day, that being the third day after Solomon's death. They come on the third day, as the king said, Come to me again 
the third day. I'm sorry, this is not the third day after Solomon's death. This is the third day after they requested of him the easing of, of taxes. And the king answered the people harshly. If you guys know the narrative, basically it goes like this. Solomon had taxed the people, and not just a tax of money, but a tax of conscription to the military, a tax of goods, a tax of their daughters to be servants in his, in his, in his court. He taxed them in every way possible, really heavily. And when Solomon died, the people came to Rehoboam and they said, if you will just ease up the burden on us, we will follow you. And so Rehoboam says, come back in three days and I'll tell you my answer. And he talks to the old men in the kingdom, and the old men in the kingdom say, do it, and they'll follow you forever. I mean, if you, if you look back in, in the text, it's kind of a George Patton kind of statement. We'll follow you to hell and back if you will just do this. And he says, that sounds like a pretty good idea. But then the young men come to him, and they're more concerned about their position and their pride than they are about you know, actually consolidating the kingdom. And they say, no, what you do is you call their bluff, and you tell them that my thumb is thicker than my father's thigh. And the king answered the people harshly, and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, now, why in the world would you do that? Why in the world, when your own father, apart from Jesus Christ, was the wisest human being to ever live, who wrote Proverbs, why would you listen to the young bucks that are still wet behind the ear, pawing at the ground and peeing on the tree, instead of the old guys that actually know what's going on? He does because the Lord put it in him to do it. The king answered the people harshly and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people. Why? For it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word which the Lord had spoken by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Why did the heart of Rehoboam in a moment go, not the old guys, the young guys? Because it was a turn of events that was ordained by God to bring about the division of the kingdom, which these men were going to stop and had the absolute power to do so, and the Lord told them not to because this thing was from him, because what they're going to do is go up to Dan and set up two golden bulls, create one of the greatest blasphemies that has ever been created, Say, this, O Israel, is thy Elohim who led you out of Egypt that would lead to the destruction, downfall, and damnation of national Israel to this very day. A damnation that when you get to Romans 700 years later, Paul is still weeping and wailing over. All that happened because God says, this is from me.
And all of this was on purpose. Understand that the Lord says to Isaiah, Isaiah in chapter 46, verse 9, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. If it was his purpose for the kingdom not to be divided, it would have not been divided. If it was his purpose not for it to be ripped from Rehoboam's hand, it would have not been ripped from Rehoboam's hand. If it was his purpose for the 180,000 to go put a stop to rebellion, the rebellion would have been stopped. If it was his purpose for Jeroboam I not to become one of the greatest blasphemers that has ever lived, he would not have become one of the greatest blasphemers that ever lived. This turn of events is from me. God says. He says it three times in one chapter. All before the events take place. It's not a knee-jerk reaction. It is divinely ordained beforehand. And that's tough biscuits. It is. So what we're not going to do is we're not going to do violence to the vocabulary or the grammar, and we're not going to do violence to the context and say this was simply God's response to what Jeroboam did because, dude, God was engineering this before Jeroboam even had a clue he was going to be king. And he tells us so. Instead, what we will say is this. I'm going to say it twice. The Creator engineers sin in order to bring about good by the intention of that which is evil and therefore display His dominance and glory even over a rebellious creation. The Creator engineers sin in order to bring about good by the intention of that which is evil and therefore displays his dominance or if you want a kind of a kind of more traditional term dominion and glory over a rebellious creation Jonathan Edwards the greatest spiritual mind that the United States of America has ever produced said it this way he said god is the permitter of sin and at the same time, a disposer of the state of events in such a manner for wise, holy, and most excellent ends and purposes that sin, if it be permitted, will most certainly and infallibly flow. Or, if you want to put it in South Sebastian County, which I think probably does best for us, God plays the evil of a fallen creation like a cheap fiddle in order to display to that creation his dominion in righteousness in spite of their rebellion. That is to say that he plays them like a cheap fiddle in such a way that every time they try to rebel and bring forth iniquity and evil, he uses it to bring forth righteousness and good. And therefore, to display his glory. 
You know, it's one thing to be able to bring forth the good. It's another thing to sit there and return the serve on evil over and over and over and over, over and over and over to the point that you can manipulate the way it's going to serve and smash the ball right back in its teeth. Now, there was a day and time, and it's been over a decade ago. There was a day and time when we come to this kind of topic that I would feel the need, the need to contend for the truth out of Scripture. And praise the Lord, I don't feel the need to do that here anymore. I don't feel the need to contend Instead, I think that we can come and reason together out of the Word. And so if we're going to understand what God is doing in Amos chapter 9, when He says very clearly, very precisely, and very much in context, I have fixed my eye upon you with a whole lot of purpose, and it's for your evil and not for your good. When He says this to national Israel, I think there is no place to plea. There is no place to reason together better than at the cross. If you want to see the Lord engineering sin to bring about righteousness, and I wanted to look at Job chapter 1 and 2. I really did. I really did. Because it makes some points that I want to make. But I feel that the Lord has constrained me Instead, to Acts chapter 2. That being said, Job chapter 1 and 2 is awesome, by the way, and you should definitely check it out in your own time. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Acts chapter 2. It's a scripture that is particularly near and dear to my heart. And I pray it is to yours as well. I mean, come on, it's the first effectual, well, that's not true. It's the first effectual gospel sermon preached by someone other than Christ. Because if you look at the end of John, you see the first effectual gospel sermon preached. But, but this is the first one that's preached by someone other than Christ. And man, it is a Vulcan canon of spiritual truth and power. In verse 22, men of Israel. I think it's really interesting considering the context of what we're looking at right here. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Okay, now, before we move on to the next statement, which is one of, I know, me and Damon's favorites, <laughs> I want to point out the way that Peter is defining very precisely and therefore boxing his audience in to a place where they don't get to bring their God in their hand. 
They don't get to go, hey, this, O Israel, is thy Elohim. This is, this is, you know, this is thy Savior, right? You don't get to say, this, O Israel, um, this one right here, this thing that we've come up with, you know, this is thy Messiah. He's boxing them in. And it's because we're about to get to definite plan, which basically means blueprint, very precise kind of language, and, and he's operating in that. So he's like, look, man, I want you to hear these words. Jesus, not just anyone, because very common name at the time, Jesus of Nazareth. A very particular man who was attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders. So he did all of these things, you know, reference the Gospels here. All of these things. And then he really puts his finger on him and says, of which you yourselves know. So you are aware of all the stuff that went down and of exactly the guy that I'm talking about, this guy. And then, and then that's what he comes to. This Jesus. It's verse 23a. This Jesus. Not another one. Not one that's kind of sort of like him. Not one the way you want him to be. But this one. This one delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So men of Israel hear these words. There is a command to listen. Peter is not making a request. Jesus of Nazareth. Which Jesus? This Jesus. Specifically. Not just anyone, but the one attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. Not your own personal Jesus. Not the God you bring in your pocket. Not the one that lets you keep the kingdom up in Bethel and Dan. Not the one that you claim led you out of Egypt, but the actual one. Not the Jesus you would pick. Not the Jesus I would pick. I would pick a much easier Jesus. I would pick one that is easy for me. Because man, when your God looks like you, you look so righteous. This one you crucified not in spite of what he was attested to be, but specifically because of what he was attested to be. Specifically because he was attested to you by mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, you delivered him up to be crucified by lawless men. Lawless men. It's a personal indictment against them. It's a personal indictment against you and me. You know, in spite of their hatred, I mean, if you just consider these guys for a moment, in spite of their hatred, when, you know, I mean, Peter just kind of, you know, he just kind of summarizes it here. He says, you know, signs and mighty works and wonders... 
But then he says, of this you yourselves know. They, they had personal experience. And so when you go back and you read the things of the Gospels and all the things that Christ did, and I'm not just talking about turning water to wine or feeding 25,000 people with the, the sack lunch of a boy. I'm talking about when the stench from Lazarus' rotten corpse was so strong that they didn't want to break the seal, and he just said, come forth, and the dude walked out of the grave. That kind of stuff. These things that they themselves knew. You would think that in spite of their hatred, that the fear of that kind of power, when they knew a man that had been lame since the day he was born, he'd been laying there every single day for 25 years. And he just walked up and said, Walk. And they said, how dare you heal a man on the Sabbath and tried to seize him and he just vanished out of their midst. You would think that the fear would be enough to check the hatred, to woe you up and go, you know what? I may not like him, but probably best we don't lynch him. Because if he can do that, what might he do to us? You would think that the fear of what they saw would be enough to check their hatred. But, friends, Romans chapter 1 teaches us one thing beyond the shadow of a doubt, and that is that the display of the power of God alone is not sufficient to turn an evil man from his ways. As a matter of fact, all he will do, according to Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through the end of the chapter, is use the display of power he sees to reverse engineer a better idol. Uh, if that's what God looks like, then I need to retweak this. You crucified him. To the point that, you know, when he rose from the dead... In Matthew chapter 28, dude rose from the dead, man. They crucified him, ran a spear through him. Dead as dead as dead. When he rose from the dead, it says that while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place, that being that an angel showed up dressed in lightning and said, He's gone. When they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell, his tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were still asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Dude, I'm thinking rain on you at this point. <laughs> like, I don't care. I don't think you can keep me out of trouble. <laughs> like, I'm pretty convinced based off the whole countenance of lightning thing, earthquake, rock shattering, dead guy not in the grave anymore, I'm thinking that the money that you have won't work. What if he fixes his eye on me for evil and not for good? So they handed him over. In spite of the fear not checking their hatred, they handed him over to lawless men to be crucified is what Peter says. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless 
men. The Greek here is animos. And it, in, in its simple definition, it means to live as though there is no law. And by extension, no consequence. But this is one of those times, I think, where if you take time to do the study, and we're not going to do it this morning, I would recommend 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 through 12 for you. But if you take time to do the study, what you will find is the concept of lawlessness is one of those concepts in Scripture where the Word of God kind of has a very particular view of what the Hebrew word could possibly mean. And so when you look in Scripture, this concept for lawlessness, uh, I'm sorry, I said the Hebrew word, the Greek word, this concept of lawlessness, man, in the Greek, it could mean something as simply as like what used to be going on in the Oklahoma Territory back in the Judge Parker days where there just wasn't a law. And so everybody kind of run around, did what they want. And if you cross the river on this side, now there's law and Parker will hang you. It could mean that, grammatically, vocabulary-wise. But when you look at Scripture, Scripture defines lawlessness in a very particular way. And 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is, is kind of the hallmark definition. Scripture defines lawlessness as the pleasurable alliance that exists between fallen angel and fallen man in the attempt to overthrow the lawgiver. We're not talking about just any old lawlessness. We're talking about a very particular kind of lawlessness where you have these two image bearers, fallen angel, fallen man, together to try to overthrow the one who gives the law. And so, these men, out of their hatred for Christ, in spite of the fear that they should have, has seen fit to turn him over to the definition of all that is evil. Now remember, if we, let's rewind back, and I know this is heady stuff, right? It's one of those sermons, heady stuff. But let's rewind back just for a minute. We think about what, it, what is the nature of sin. Sin is dependent. Evil is dependent. Evil is dependent upon the righteous standard. So here's the righteous standard, and it is God himself. It is preexistent. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And what is the definition of sin? Falling short of the glory of his standard. And here is the very definition of what it means to fall short of that glory. Here is evil on purpose. This is evil with intention. This is evil with a plan. This is not just the snot-nosed, bratty, bully kid that lives down the street. This is Adolf Hitler. This is Trajan. This is Nero. This isn't Jehovah's Witness. It's the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This is on purpose. They gave him. The only truly righteous human being that has ever existed. 
they handed over to be crucified, to be killed in the most brutal manner that you can possibly be killed by the very epitome of evil. Men with the agenda and the hatred of Lucifer. That is the conviction of the gospel. And friends, apart from Jesus Christ, if me and you were there, we would have done exactly the same thing. We would have yelled, crucify him. And the only way we wouldn't have is by the grace of God. And by the grace of God that was extended to Peter and John themselves, then if we had had that grace extended to us, it would have been just enough that we ran like cowards spit on the ground and curse and say, I don't know him. And we would have handed him over to lawlessness. Now that's as despicable and evil of a thing that has ever happened. It is the greatest evil that has ever been perpetrated in the history of creation. And it was all done according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So let's take just a moment to, to kind of dissect this. If I was going to be a cool guy that had a stool, I'd say we'd unpack it. Huh? Give me some chai tea, some wicker slippers. Sweet. Huh? Let's unpack it. This happened by the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. Let's start with foreknowledge, because this is one that often gets played really pretty fast and loose with. The word here is prognosko. If you've been around Mount Zion for very long, gnosko is a Greek word that you ought to know about as well as you know agape. Gnosko means knowledge, but it doesn't mean just any kind of knowledge. It's a very particular kind of knowledge, just like agape is a very particular kind of love. So agape is not kind of the warm, fuzzy love of phileo. It instead is love with intention to do that which is best for the beloved. The cool thing about agape is, is the beauty of agape is not in the object that is loved. The beauty is in the lover. So too, gnosko. Gnosko is knowledge, but it's not head knowledge. It's not information. It's not knowing. And when we talk about pro-gnosko, which means knowledge before, we're not talking about knowledge the way you know tomorrow's headlines today. Gnosko is intimate knowledge. It's the knowledge that you only have because you've had personal experience with someone. It's the knowledge between husband and wife. It's the knowledge between brothers. It's the knowledge between sisters. It's the knowledge that a parent has with their child and a child has with their parent. And so, it means to know in a complete and intimate sense, not some vague understanding. But when we're talking about, when we're talking about the crucifixion of Christ, at the hands of lawless men, when it says this occurred according to his foreknowledge, 
that it means that he had intimate experiential knowledge with every single blow of the hammer. That when the hammer dropped, if it glanced off the side and broke his pinky, he knew it. That the way that the bones in his ankle shake, because you understand that regardless of what you see in a Catholic church's diorama, they didn't drive the nails through the front of their feet. They nailed their through their heels into the side of the into the side of the cross. This this way, every splinter, every fragment, what it felt like when they ripped his beard out of his face, when they flailed him so hard that it would have left his ribs exposed, that he knew intimately what every single blow, what every single cut, what what all of the dehydration and the suffocation where your lungs are filling up with water because you can't press yourself up enough to get a breath of air. He knew what every single one felt like all beforehand. He knew it all. He did it anyway. I would direct you to 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 9. We're speaking to Solomon. The Lord says, You, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. And the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, you will be found by him. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Speaking of his foreknowledge to Solomon, he says, man, I know everything that you think. I know everything you feel. And I know it before you feel it. So, therefore, if you do this, then this, and if you do that, then that, and I already know which one it's going to be. You see, friends, God's foreknowledge does not dictate his sovereign response. God's foreknowledge is in the employment of his sovereign purpose. Now, that's a statement right there that will set a lot of people, they'll popcorn on you over that one. Let me show you what it looks like in a way that maybe we can grasp and see as being good in Psalm 139. Hey guys, listen, I'm working here. Work with me. We'll dig down into this together. In Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6. The mirror image of what God is showing Amos in Amos chapter 9. David says, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know. And, And you don't know in real time. You know before time. You search me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I arise. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You know everything about it. You know everything about what I'm going to say before I even know what I'm going to say. And he says this in verse 5. is a beautiful thing to me. You hem me in. You hem me in. Where would I be? Where would you be if he hadn't hemmed you in?
where would we be, Mount Zion? If he just hadn't said, no, not that way. This way. And you don't get a choice. You're going. But Lord, that looks so much better. And this looks, that looks, that's good. And this is evil. You're going this way. You hem me in. Behind and before. Okay, we're going this way. No, I don't want to go that way. I'm going back. Oops. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And so if you just look at foreknowledge, you go, man, okay, God was intimate with all of the details of everything that was going to happen beforehand. And so in kind of the dusty little thoughts of the dusty little minds of the children of Adam who was made from dust, we say to ourselves, well, then God acts the way he does because he knows what I will do. And so we, we, we look at the cross or, or we look back here at Amos with Jeroboam and we go, why is it that when this thing's going to end in disaster, God's coming in here going, no, don't stop it. It's for me. And no, I'm going to make it happen this way because it's for me. And I'm going to cause you to hand him over in spite of all the stuff you saw to the hands of lawless men because of me. And he's really doing that because he has foreknowledge. He knows what's going to happen beforehand. And so he reacts accordingly. This is called the tongue of time theory and it is blasphemy let me see if I can make that a little clearer it's blasphemy it's counter from God I hate it because it's hateful the creator is not the puppet of his creation his plan is not jerked around and defined because of what the men of dust may decide they're going to do or because of what once glorious angels have found hidden in the darkest depths of their heart. Instead, God uses his knowledge of what I will do to him, me in, in order to fulfill his purpose for me. Oh, he's got foreknowledge, all right, and he uses it. He uses it in the service of his purpose, not as the thing that defines his purpose. And the reason we know that is because when Peter is explaining in the very first gospel message ever preached how this is all came about, he says the Lord didn't do this just according to his foreknowledge. He did it by his foreknowledge and simultaneously by his definite plan. Horizio Boule. Definite, that which is decided, appointed, and marked out, is Boule. His counsel, his purpose, his intention. I love this. And this is from the, the Dictionary of Biblical Languages. This is the Greek domain. Intention as the result of reflection. 
Now, that's a statement. Lord, how did you come up with your definite plan? Well, I knew everything that was going to happen. I knew whatever blow of the hammer was going to feel like on the nail. I knew whatever single hair follicle being ripped out of my face was going to feel like. I knew all of that. And then I reflected upon it. And having reflected upon it, came up with this plan. means to mark out. It's a blueprint. A technical drawing. The way that if you want an engine or a firearm or a bridge or a skyscraper to work out real well, you build it exactly like it says on the paper. In other words... Having full knowledge, intimate knowledge, personal knowledge, not intellectual knowledge. But the way it feels, the way it tastes, the way it smells. God considered all the infinite thoughts of his infinite mind and said, here's the way I want to do it. Here's the play. Here's the X's and the O's. Here's the plan. Here's the blueprint. And the blueprint is this. What I'm going to do is deliver him up, literally hand him over or betray him in the Greek into the hands of lawless men. I'm going to take my son, my son, that is the only righteous human being who has ever existed and my perfect plan, having considered everything I could do. You understand that if God wanted to, he could sell salvation at Walmart for 15 cents off the bubblegum rack. He could grow it on trees. You say, that's blasphemous? No, it's not. He grew death on a tree. This is the one who all his purposes will stand. He can do it however he wants to do it. He chose to do it this way. You know why? Because in spite of what you or I might think, that is what goodness looks like. That's it. Woe to those who would think they know better. He looked around it, the way it felt, the realities of it. You know, it's one thing. It's one thing for a kid to think he wants a full back tattoo and go in there and get about six hours deep and figure out that he don't. He knew whatever blow of the nail felt like. Nothing surprised him. He didn't get in over his head knowing perfectly everything it meant, knowing that he would look at his disciples and say, you didn't choose me, but I chose you, and one of you is the devil, and Judas, you're going to burn. Even though he had put three years into telling him the truth that would save his soul, if he would just listen, knowing all of that, 
knowing the pain of the men that he was dying for, were going to curse and spit on the ground and turn, knowing all of it, knowing the weight of filth that he was dying for, for Brian Williams and for you, he said, this is the way it's going down. This way. I will engineer evil to bring about good. Definite plan and foreknowledge. Why not one or the other? Because he hymns us in. You understand, if he only said this was done by the definite plan of God, then that gives... That gives you a place to, to get God off the hook and to bring God in your hand and to make Him the way you want Him to be. So if it was only by the definite plan, then you can go, well, because there wasn't any foreknowledge. I mean, God put Adam in the garden and He put the tree there and, and, and He said, do this and don't do that and everything will be okay, but then it wasn't okay. And so God had to kind of regroup, figure out what the new plan was going to be because, man, things have gone off the track and we've got to get it back on the track. Men failed. What do we do now? I guess we'll have to kill the boy. And the result, if it's foreknowledge only, is that instead of men being hemmed in by God, what you have is God being hemmed in by the circumstances that men have produced. And the Creator becomes the puppet of the creation. If only by foreknowledge. And not by definite plan. God knew what we were going to do. Golly, he doesn't want it to be that way. He does want it to be that way. He knew what we were going to do, and he doesn't want it to be that way, but he just doesn't have any other choice because that's what we did. And so that being the case, and you know, I wouldn't have chosen it to be this way, but that's the position I found myself in. Have you ever found yourself in that position? I have. I found myself in that position where I didn't want it to be a certain way, but it was, and it's just kind of like tough cookies, so deal with it. Okay, that is the condition of a finite creature, not the condition of an infinitely holy God. If it was only foreknowledge... And he said, well, I didn't want it to be this way, but this is the way it's going to be. And so I would have done it different if they would have let me, but they won't, so I guess I'll do it this way. Then instead of being hemmed in by circumstance, God is being hemmed in by human will. And see, Satan would love you to hold on to either one of these without the other. He would love it. That's what lawlessness is about is trying to overthrow the dominion of the Creator. And if He can get you to take just one without the other, it doesn't matter which one you take. If you will just take definite plan, as long as you don't take foreknowledge, or if you'll just take foreknowledge, as long as you don't take definite plan, man, He's got you. He's got you. And you're not fighting against lawlessness, you're joining with it. It is this Jesus, this one, no others. There's no option B. This is it. This is the one. This Jesus was delivered up by the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. 
When you take definite plan and foreknowledge and put them together, what you end up with is no wiggle room, knowing all that will be and having infinite paths before him. God chose this path as the perfect expression of his good character. The perfect expression of his good character. This was it, man. You want to know what righteousness looks like? Righteousness looks like the Lord allowing lawlessness so that he could hand his perfect son over to it in order to save the very people that handed him over. That's it. That is thy Elohim who led you out of Egypt. Not the one that Jeroboam claimed to be, but the actual one. And guys, let me tell you something. What I'm about to say may offend you, but I'm going to tell you in your offense what it betrays is that you think you're more valuable than you are. If he's willing to do that to his son, then he is certainly willing to do it to creatures that he spoke into existence out of nothing. Now I know everybody thinks that boy the sons and daughters of Adam now we we got some stuff going on and we're inherently valuable but let me tell you something if he's willing to hand his son over to that for the glory of his own name then he's willing to hand over men to damnation you say man are you making God the author of sin oh no no friend I'm not I'm not he wills that none should perish. But having known intimately all that will be, he definitively says it's going to be this way. To deny that is not to war against lawlessness, but to join it. Don't stumble on this. I'm almost done. Romans chapter 9. We're, we're finished. Romans 9. I'll be honest with you. When we dove off into Amos, I was ignorant of the degree to which the events of Amos are tied to Romans chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11. But man, they are. In Romans chapter 9, in verse 31, Paul asks the question, considering the lostness of Israel that's being spoken of in Amos chapter 9, when God fixes his eye on them for evil instead of for good. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. 
but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The problem that the Jews had was not that the law wasn't good enough. The problem was that the Jews approached a lawful law from the lawgiver in a lawless way. They approached a law that the lawgiver gave them that could only be pursued by faith and tried to pursue it by works. They said, this isn't who the lawgiver is. He's not the lawgiver that would say that faith as the gift from him is enough. Instead, it has to be by things that I do. And they took a law... twisted who God was and pursued it in a lawless way and in doing so it became completely ineffectual for them to the point that it not only didn't work but it cemented and hardened their heart unto damnation they stumbled over the stone laid in Zion that was a rock of offense And so here's what I'm asking you today. Is this Jesus offensive to you? It's a big question. It's not a light thing. Is this Jesus offensive to you? It was offensive to them. Man, we're getting ready to go to Matthew, and what you're going to see is all of this stuff unfolding in real time where people are very offended because what they want is a king on a white horse swinging a big sword, and they're not going to get one, and it makes them real angry. They want him to be a certain way. Back in Amos, they wanted him to be a certain way. Peter says, look, man, here's how it works. By the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, he handed him over to be crucified by the hands of lawless men. Guys, people hate that gospel. All you have to do is, is look on any chat board on the internet. And it doesn't take long before some 19-year-old college student that thinks all of a sudden they've become enlightened are going to throw up some charge against Christianity that says, well, I don't want to worship a God that would have his own son slaughtered. Well then, what you will do is bow the knee in hell. Because that's who he is. And if you can't see the glory in that, if you can't see the goodness in that, if you can't see this Creator who can stand before the creation and hold time and existence in His hand and say, I don't have to suffer, but I will. I could save you without having any connection to you. I could be distant. I could be apart from you. Man, this is Hebrews chapter 6. I'm off the notes at this point. This is Hebrews chapter 6 stuff where he's going, look, man, he did all of this specifically so that he could relate to you in your suffering. 
And he looked at what it was going to cost him. And he said, I'll do it because I'm good. And this is what good looks like. So I'll come and I will suffer horrors that are too graphic for me to tell in their fullness to our children so that those children might not perish. So that you and me, when you know we've spit in his face, you know you have. I have. What was I thinking? The fallen hatred of men trumps the fear of a holy God every time apart from the grace of God. Man, if you can't see the glory in that, when you can make that kind of statement as I don't want any part with a God that would sacrifice His own Son, well, you're going to have a part with Him and it's not going to be the part that you want. What we do, what we do is bow the knee. If he says, I'm going to sacrifice my son in foreknowledge and by my definite plan in order to save a wretch like me, song about that this morning, to save a wretch like me, then as crazy as that sounds to me, it sounds crazy good. And if he's going to look at Israel, the apple of his eye, his begotten, and say, I'm going to, no matter where you run, no matter how high, no matter how low, I'll be there to kill you. I fix my eye on you for evil and not for good. Then so be it. You go, man, well, that's, 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 that's harsh. It is harsh, man. Let me tell you something. Salvation is brutal. It's brutal. The price will be paid. What you're being saved from is damnation. And God lets no one who is guilty walk. The price is going to be paid. It'll either be paid by you or be paid by son. One of the two. It's brutal. Don't stumble over the stumbling stone like they did. Embrace him. This Jesus. Not a different one. Not the one that you want him to be. Embrace this one. This one that Peter is proclaiming. This one that Amos is proclaiming. Embrace this one. Just like he is. Because what he's doing in Amos in bringing evil to Israel and not to good before you know the western church gets too high and mighty on itself and starts accusing God for how could you do that what he's doing is saving your soul Romans chapter 11 verse 28 as regards the gospel they are enemies for your sake just now, he's about to get more explicit than that, but just load up for just a second. Speaking of Israel, as regards the gospel, 
They are enemies for your sake. When God was sitting there in his foreknowledge, knowing all that would be, and setting up his definite plan when all infinite possibilities set before him, at least one of the reasons, and it is only one, at least one of the reasons that he set his eye on Israel for evil instead of for good was for you, Gentile. and for your kid. You want to get real about it? Let's move on from you. Did it for your kid and your grandkid. So don't get too haughty here. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. As regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. This story's not over yet. We're not done. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so too, so too, have they now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. We did incarnation on Wednesday nights in this last Wednesday night run. Jim taught for me on the night I was gone and he taught about the testimony of the Gentiles in the midst of Israel in the Old Testament. You did Rahab, right? Could have done Rahab, could have done Ruth couple options there that's about it there's a handful more there's a handful more but if you want to know them by name and know their story there's only a handful of Gentiles that we see grafted in in the Old Testament you know why because there was a day according to Romans chapter 11 when God had hardened the Gentiles and consigned them to disobedience so that Israel might be saved And at some point that switched. And he set his eye on them for evil and not for good. And he consigned them to disobedience in order that you Gentiles might be saved. And the greatest thing is, and it's a sermon for a different day, and Ethan went 130. It's not going to be 130. The greatest thing that we're not going to talk about today, but we will in a couple of weeks is that when you take both of these things together, they're going to fit together perfectly at the consummation of the age to save all of his elect. And so you look at one, you go, well, it was great for the Jews when it was to the Jews, but boy, it's a bad deal for the Gentiles, and it's a good deal for the Gentiles for today, but boy, you can't hardly find a Jew that's being saved. No, friends, it's about to do this. And we're getting closer every day. We're getting closer every day. That's this Jesus. That's this one. The one that was handed over to lawless men by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The the one that looks at Israel and says stuff like, I've set my eye on you for evil and not for good. And it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. That's who he is. And he is the definition of what is good.
even when it's hard. Friends, I don't know if you know any Jews or not, but I know you know a lot of Gentiles. Today's the day of salvation. And hey, man, you say, man, I do know some Jews. Great. Guess what? There is a remnant saved by grace. And the very fact that somebody that knows the gospel knows them may be evidence that they're one of those dudes. So you should go tell them. And tell them the same thing I'm going to tell you right now. Come to Christ. You can come up here if you want. That's fine. You don't need to. You're saved right where you sit. By grace, through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And man, it is a gift. Because he could have looked at you and said, I've fixed my eye on you for evil. But if you're hearing this word, he is looking at you and saying, I have fixed my eye upon you for grace. Come.